0: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde.
1: Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.
0: Here on Radley Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text 2057, email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. I get excited about my guests, but um, none more so than this one. Uh, We've got the Bishop Brian Tamaki who says, just call me Brian, which is a Kiwi thing, right? And Brian, good morning. Good morning, yeah. Rodney. Look, I've got to tell you, my yeah. dear mother, my dear mother passed yeah. away last year, ninety-four. God rest her soul. She had a great life, so I don't feel sad. I miss her, but mm. I've got to tell you, she and I loved your protest. Wow! And my mother was saying, "I just want to go on one of those motorbikes and protest." expletive the Prime Minister with you, and it gave her such a lot of joy to see you standing up for us. And I have to say, for me, myself, personally, it emboldened me. And I really would like to salute you and your team, because they were dark days to stand up and be counted. Oh, yeah. And you paid a price in terms of your media coverage, right? They were nasty, nasty, nasty. And anyway, I just had to tell you that my mother will be looking down on us and so excited that I'm speaking with you and that I get the opportunity to tell you that she wanted to ride with the boys on their bikes. Now, I want to get into lots, but can you tell me, what you know of the Marama Davidson in- incident, because you recall she went on and was the big victim of Destiny Church.
1: Yeah, that was interesting because I stopped on my way down to um, Artier Centre where Hannah was already holding a stand for um, the woman. That was before she knew about Posey. But um, I stopped there to have a look on the way through and um, saw the situation. and I saw how many um, transgender uh, opposition that was there, and I thought to myself, there's going to be trouble here. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'd better move on, because the temptation would have been to have gone in there and looked after stuff, but they didn't want that. So I know when I'm not wanted, and I went. We moved. Apparently, um, something happened at the back where um, Marima Davidson, went across a uh, crossing, and then she saw the bike. She knew who it was. She knew it was me and the riders. And I think she did something crazy like trying to cross back again to put her hand up in some way that she was somebody special. She wasn't a a traffic inspector or or anything like that. Um, So she took a risk with her life, knowing the bikes were going through Normally, in that situation, people wait. They're just It's mm. common sense. It's halfway through the bikes. You don't mm. go halfway through and try and so – I don't know what she was trying to do, get tension or get hit or what, but it was a, a suicidal act.
0: It was. I, I saw the video eventually, um. <laughs> and um, she was crazy. And then it's the thing of our times, right? She became the poor me, the big victim, yeah, yeah, and
1: and it was entirely her doing. But we yeah. see a lot of that now, don't we? Well, they blame me at first, and it was clear that I was way out in front. And I <laughs> said, one of the, the media said, did you hit her? And I said, listen, if I had hit her, she wouldn't get back up off the ground again. No, <laughs> no. It's like, um, no, it's crazy. That, well, that's been, like you said, Rodney, It's been a a whole part of my life since way back in 2004. That's when it changed.
0: I want to cover your life because Mm. I'm sure listeners are like me. Um, They're fascinated by you. For my money, uh, just so you know where I am coming from, um, I thought you were fringe. Mm. I took great. I had a lot of respect for Tariana Turia. Yeah, And I sat beside her in Parliament for three years and we shared stories and I learned a lot from her and she spoke very, very highly of you and your work, which Mm. made me look at you differently rather than just a media portrayal. Yeah. Then I have to say, when you protested, you shot up in my estimation enormously and I've also had... This whole experience of COVID, transgenderism, and this complete bewilderment about what has happened to our world. Mm. The fact that I can't trust any of my preconceptions or anything that the media have told me. And in that deep thing, I have become a Christian. And I can't tell you what that has meant to me this year. And so I look at you. Now, completely different. And, of course, I understand your program for men. So I'm fascinated and our listeners are aware of we can't just read in the media and have our values and views assigned to us by the media, and also our attitudes about people and events and things. Mm. And so we feel lucky to have you with us to tell us your story. I'd like to know about you growing up, first of all.
1: Well, okay. Um, You just stop me, though, Rodney, when you want to. I'm fine. And um, change course, you can just interrupt. Um, I was born in a family um, in Te that's uh, just south of Hamilton, um, farming families. My mother is uh, European. In fact, my grandmother's Italian, full Italian. And mum, um, um, her dad was, uh, my grandfather, English, and of course, the Italian grandmother. So dad was a Māori and they lived in the same area. Um, both had farms, although the Māori farm was full of gorse, and the farm up the top there, mum was from a very middle-class, wealthy farming family with five, six sisters, one son. So they all married in farm. So I grew up on the farm. Was with, it a big uh, deal your mum and dad marrying uh, a Maori? Yeah. Um, my my grandmother and grandfather did not want my mother to marry my dad because he was a Maori. Mm. In those days, <clears throat> it was, um, especially with the kind of family, very, very um, – Middle class white rich family, yes. and um, it was through the uh, table tennis down the, the local farmers' hall. And of course, Dad was a good player, and he was young. He was from a big family—eighteen altogether in his family. How many? Eighteen. Yeah, big Maori family. It was eighteen big, kids or sixteen kids? Uh, eighteen. Eighteen. She had eighteen children. Um, oh most my goodness. She lost one, and she adopted three into pretty big um, Maori family names. <clears throat> but it was that was where they met in the in the hall. And Dad was a good player. Dad was the oldest in the family, so I'm the oldest grandson of that family. And um, my grandmother on my father's side is a direct descendant of Princess Tapuya. She, mm. her- she was a head. She was a My grandmother. Mm. So I used to go to Turanga Waiwai Marae was a little boy because she used to go all the time. And so they had great respect and they, <clears throat> the, the royal family always knew who I was. I didn't. And um, I was to have a lot to do with um, Dame Te Rangi Rangikahu. She knew my whakapapa very well. Got me there a lot to speak about the Christian faith because she was often concerned with Tainui's direction. And um, I kind of felt like dropped in it sometimes because I spoke at a Ruby breakfast the year that she died, and 650 um, odd um, Tainui elders, all of the board members and the, the names you'd know, were there. It was totally off the charts. They were not happy about Queenie um, choosing me to be the keynote speaker. And I wasn't happy either. Because <laughs> I said to her, Why do you, you know? I'm totally at odds, probably, with the tikanga and what I'd say. And she said, "That's exactly what I want you to do." Oh my god. She goodness. said, I'm, "I'm concerned with my people," and I said, "What? What are the concerns?" Well, she said, "Like going back to to Te um, the first um, the first Maori chief, um, Poutoto, and saying that um, him and his next son Tafio. He was converted big time to Christianity, and um, he had stopped all his killings. One of the biggest, um, most uh, notorious warriors of his day, um, they were converted, you see. So he said they brought the tikanga through, but they left the Bible behind, which they always anointed the Maori kings with with the scriptures from Deuteronomy, that you shall rule over your people with the anointing with God. So I said, well, that's going to be fairly easy for me. But the next one, she said, really shocked me, and I haven't really spoken about this. Um, she said to me, a lot of the people and the young ones around me are gay. And she says, I don't like that. And I said, mm. whoa. Now, she said, I've been watching you on TV because I had an early TV program. <clears throat> I was the first Kiwi that pioneered um, a speaker, an evangelical speaker, from the home country to be on the um, Christian TV um, preaching slots because it was always Americans. But I sat there one day looking and I said to my wife, you know what, they need a Kiwi on here. And she says, you don't know anything about TV, Brian. You haven't got any money. That's always the thing that's been told me. You can't, you can't. And I've always, I've put up and built something in me that says you can, you can. And so I said we can, you know. Well, it wasn't only two weeks later that a couple came into our our church, the Cardno Cardno family. You might know them. They had a Cardno video productions years mm-hmm. ago in Waterloo. Yes, yes. I yeah, Neil Cardno and Janine, and they came in and when I told them about, you know how how can I get on TV because I need to preach the gospel to my own people. And she said that's easy, you know. We can do that part of it. We just need to pray that we can get a, a slot. Well, we got one. One of the Americans pulled out, and so I got that slot. And I was one. Of, I was the first um, New Zealand speaker, and I couldn't believe how the, the response that came, because they said, "You speak our language, kind of not not languages and linguistics, but the language of understanding what most of them couldn't is that survival. And that's that's my real gift." I can pull out of the scripture one verse and make it speak and come alive with stories, but then also the revelatory truth that is able to get people to really go like, wow, I got that, you know, and affect them deeply. So that's why people came after a while to my preaching. Nothing It is, else a, not, gift.
0: It is a gift.
1: It's a God thing. Yeah, God's yes. gift. It's a God gift, and um, I do have it. Um but I should not so, so the Queen. Yeah,
0: the Queen got there. me in.
1: And she's. And so She I, was not I remember, happy with the gays. Not happy, yeah. A lot of them around them, And I remember, if I remember, she said, I heard you once saying the only person she said had the guts to say it on publicly that you weren't happy with the gay, the rainbow movement at that time. Because I'd already had some goings on with them in 2004 with Helen Clark. When she, I knew she was opening the door way back then. But anyway, I said, well, that's a bit tricky because I get taken to pieces on this, um, but I will do it because it's right. And I, I wasn't, I don't hate anybody, never have. Um, but I had this very, basically I had an out-of-body experience in my conversion. It had to be because in my farming, I really got on well with my uncles who taught me how to smoke cigars when I was about 10 freaking <laughs> beer in the back of a Zeppelin Mark one, you know, because I was like the younger brother because there's was only about four years between me and the youngest. Yep. Dad was the oldest. Yeah. So I had, a, I had a great upbringing. Swimming in clean rivers. The Waipa River was crystal clear those days. Riding horses, um, shooting rabbits and getting fruit. The fruit trees are beautiful. Going into the Te Aumuru Hotel. As a 12, 13 year thirteen-year-old, the publican let me in because there were so many. My uncles was a big family. The Tamaki family was a big family in town. Yes. So I just walked in there and played pool and drank beer. They used to try and stop me, you know, <laughs> trying to smoke and coughing. But you know, essentially, they were good guys. They
0: great guys.
1: Yeah they they lived all of them like, the
0: whole generation.
1: Hard workers. Hard, had hard workers. Work, I the milk cows and the old hearing was the it was the um old bale run through hearing bone yeah. no it yeah. wasn't the hearing bone it was the actual um the old gate walk through yeah yep. so you had to do it by hand open up the the yeah. gate and let them walk through wooden gates so there was not wasn't the hearing bone yet that was to come and of course my rich white family up the up the hill they were the first ones to have the big um round um the ro- the rotating yes. The yes. Big rotating sheds where you could put about 60 odd, 70 odd cows at once. They were one of the first to do it in the country. So, did you, did you feel growing up
0: the difference between yep. your white family and your Maori family? It must have been quite amazing. Big family, hard case guys smoking, drinking, and then <laughs> the white family well off doing.
1: Like well materially, it must have been. I love my grand. I, I love my Italian grandmother. Yes, that's where I think I've got a lot of my speaking skills and speaking fast, because she used to all the time expressive, and I mm. and I'm quite an expressive preacher. I'm a bit sort of more restrained now, but um, I used to really use my hands and walk up and down. I never stayed behind a pulpit. I would walk yeah. and stop and talk, then walk here and gauge people. I think it was a, in the early years when I was in the denomination, that was a, a kind of a, a trait I had that the old timers used to look at me and say, you know what, you preach like the old ones before them. I mean, I'm that talking back in the 50s and 40s or 30s, I should say, and um, the old preachers then were very expressive, but – as time went on, religion kind of got a lot more stately and secular yeah. and you started to restrain preachers and
0: yeah. We're talking with Brian Tamaki, you're on real talk with Rodney Hyde. Um, what an amazing growing up. We're gonna get on to why people should vote for you, but I want to cover all of this <laughs> because it's so wonderful. Tell yeah. me, um, were your mum well, and dad religious?
1: Okay. Um my dad's family is where I got a lot of my, um, I think, love for people um, and the love they had. They had a very free-flowing style of living, no worries, less stress than my European family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had one identified uncle whose name was Colin then, big guy, muscular, you know, just one of those ones out of the box. They had the natural physique but – he couldn't, didn't talk too well. They used to call him, they used to call him dunce sometimes because he was slow in his mind. But he, he wasn't slow in the sense of hard work. So I loved the way that he took time with me to say to me things like, never give up, boy. And he said to "He's sorry to say this, but he'd say things like, you know, all the so, Nathans and the Emerys down the road there, you're better than them. Okay, he says never let you yourself be put under anybody else. So he was talking about this to me as a young kid, and I was taking it in. And he said, "Never say no. When you get a, when you get something given to you, you, take it." He said, and he said, and he just got that. He was very independent. He was the guy that did all the farming. He was strong naturally. I loved that physical physicality, but I loved his positivity. Mm. It was strange for the late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. I asked him one day later on when I grew up, it became probably an embedded childhood um, groove in my mind, and my heart, that he said, you know, you can do it. Never say no. You're better than anybody else. It was all kind of wrong, wrong philosophy of thinking for Kiwis. Totally the opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, Because all the others around me, especially my European family, were very um, resilient. Don't do this. Don't do that. You could not Yeah, well, they didn't. Didn't hug much, very quiet. So I had a taste. I loved both, and I was accepted readily with both, being the eldest grandson. Um, But I asked my uncle one day when I grew up, I said, where did you get this stuff from? Because none of the others talk like this, and you weren't like them. You didn't drink a lot. You were the one that stopped the fights in the pubs. You were the big hero. I loved your positivity, and I lived on it. In fact, he got me a job. My first job was on a chainsaw operating Taking big willows out of the Waipa River. And we went to apply because we wanted the money. And I've only seen him drive the old David Brown. But when we went down there, there was this great big drag line, big crane. We went down there, this guy came out and he said, Oh, well, who are you? And he said, We live up there. I'm applying for the job. And he said, What do you do? And he said, Oh, I drive those drag lines. And I looked at him and I thought, No, you don't in my head. And then he said, what does he do? And he says, he's a chainsaw operator. I said, <laughs> I've never touched one. <laughs> and then he, he hopped up in there and I watched him. He said, don't say anything and just watch me. And he hopped up there and he says, oh, I know this model. Is that the one? And the guy started to say, yeah, you push that one, push that one, that lever and that lever. So he was learning while the guy was saying, because he said, I drove a different one than this. He he's was no doubt was, was he? No, he wasn't. And he learned that thing and then he got me and he said, I'll show you how. And he just don't, just make sure you don't start it on the ground, don't let it kick back so it cuts your leg. And he said, just start cutting and it, I'll help you. Well, that's why after I left farming, I got my own logging contract. Tell me, did, what did he, why did he, did he tell you, did he
0: answer your question about why he was like he was?
1: Yeah, where did you get this from? Because it affected me, it yes. made me. He said he got it from watching a little wee TV with his brothers when Muhammad Ali was fighting. And Muhammad Ali would sit there and say, I am the greatest, you know.
0: I love it. I'm the
1: prettiest on the planet. Nobody's faster than me. And I said, is that where you got it? And he said, yep. And he said, you know why, Brian? He said, because all around me I saw my brothers, my mother and father live with their heads hung down. And he said, I didn't want to live like that. I wanted to live so I was tall, proud, and that I could do anything and nobody could have it over me. And I said, wow, because I picked that up. And I said, look, I'm so affected by this. This is years later, just before he died. I said, really, you you gave me the basis of how I am as a person. And it helped my leadership skills to always my opinion was always more important than anybody else's. And what you believed about you is more important than what they believe about you. Mm-hmm. And he always said never let people put you down. And
0: wasn't um, Ma- I wasn't Muhammad Ali yeah. truly, truly great. He was a great man, I reckon he was a great man. And I remember, I remember him. And um, I remember my mum saying, oh, you know, he talks too much because it's not the Kiwi way, right? Mm. He brags and boasts and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Yeah. And she didn't like that about him. But in hindsight, it was the greatest part of him. Yeah. Because but More than his boxing. More than his boxing because here he was, a poor black man, yeah. Discriminated against at every turn, yeah. and then going on to be so brave and courageous, and never bowing his head to anyone, mm-hmm. and to lose everything that he lived for for years because of his political conviction.
1: Well, as much as and I religious I be- conviction, yes, that's right. And as much as I believe God, it's very important that I also believe me. Yes, and if you can't believe you that it's very hard for other people to believe you and God right wants you to
0: right he wants you to believe oh in yeah, God.
1: absolutely well the constant question to jesus was who are you mm. and he had to explain that that his identity was was central to his actual success in his ministry and getting through the hardships and the the, the terrible suffering so what um, was your cool. uncle's name again colin well
0: colin of course, was the opposite of a victim. That's right. He he would be he would be mortified. Mm. And particularly how much I despise the Maori leadership who make victims of their people.
1: That's right. Now, I think that's what he saw in his own family. They've been victimized, they brought into it. He no. was the only one that didn't. And he kind of took me on as his little disciple, if you like, or mentoring yeah. me. But I took a liking to him because I loved his physicality. And
0: yeah. And then, of course, of course, strong. But of course, Muhammad Ali was victimized. Yeah. But he didn't accept it.
1: No. Well, I loved him when he took the anti war uh, position. Yes. He postured himself in the position of saying, I am standing up for what's right. Why do I want to go and kill all those little yellow men, he said, when you back here are killing us? You know, i got nothing against them. I've got something against you, yeah. And that terrible
0: story when he won gold in Rome, came back to America. For some reason, I got it that it was in Washington, D.C., Mm. and he went to go to a restaurant and was refused entry. Yeah. Yeah, you just realize You can't. Yeah. Imagine, they I felt upset when I was denied entry to the local pool because I wasn't vaccinated. <laughs> well, there's yeah. a bit of taste. Bit of yeah, a taste it was. Of it. I tell you, yeah. it was. It was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was because all the other parents filed in, and my little boy, 7-year-old, wanted to go for a swim, couldn't because he didn't have me supervising him, and we had to turn away. And my son looked at me with tears in his eyes saying, why can't we go in there, Dad? Mm. And I thought, as silly as it sounds, that's the first time I've been discriminated against. Yeah. And it was the hurt and the humiliation with my son. And you think Ooh. of that, poor blacks and Maori down through the years have suffered that with their, in front of their children. That's right. It's, it's true. Thing. That's true. Now, tell me about you. I asked you about your parents, and we got talking about it. <laughs> right, tell me so, about – no, I'm going to jump. Tell me where – you're on? Really. My radio. dad. You, I, I, I want to tell you where you became a Christian.
1: Okay. Well, look, you know, you, that was a good question about my dad and mum because my dad, was a, he was an alcoholic at that point. You got to it. He was violent. He was violent to my mum, and he was violent to me. And my two brothers, the three of us, a year between us, so we got very close. Um, Dad was violent. Mum, her family were atheists. Funny that, because they were a godly family once, a generation, I think, before. I think the war had a lot to do with this. But a lot of them lost that faith, and they were a, a generation now of Kiwis who I believe came out with a strong faith but lost it. And... Um, my family on my mum's side, they they were godless. I was I was quite amazed at this in hindsight, but my mum, of all of them, for some reason, she believed God. It was just she was she became a Methodist, very committed Methodist. Her her mum and her father used to, but probably put it down a bit, criticising, but she held that faith and. Um, my dad was the opposite. So here you have, and what mum did you to dress me and my brothers up, this, I'll never forget this. We were all little kids. We were living in town. We were, uh, what it felt like, 100 miles away from the Methodist church. We had to walk because dad would be um somewhere partying and, and all weekend with his brother, some of them, or somewhere, never come home. So she would see him missing on Friday. Sometimes he just a... Uh, Get the milk, the cows, and gone and wouldn't even come home for a weekend. So, mum used to take us all this way. She'd spit, that's why we're here. She used to comb our hair backwards, yes. spit it down. i never forget it. She would want us looking immaculate. I think she was paid, maybe um, in pain, a bit of compensation for her half breeds, I call it. Because the Methodist church at that time was very white. In fact, it was all white. And that's where she went. They wore the hats in those days and pretty much we used to get the looks and she would get the looks because she was like, are you a single mum being who you are and you got these little wee half-breed kids and damn, they're nuisances, they're about, they misbehave. We were, we were rascals. Man. I mean, I remember, take my hat off to my mum, but I don't remember much about whatever was done or said. I remember going to Sunday school and seeing the flannel boards with Noah's Ark. The telling thing that is another trait put on me was my mum's commitment. She never missed the beat. And I think that really um, became a feature in my life that my mother would never give up. She would stand, even though all those people used to look at her, frown, wouldn't talk to her. And she had a habit of a job trying to, because we used to mess around in the church and make a noise and take the money out of the plate instead of putting it in. And it's like, but I'll never forget, I'll never forget that. And never. that became a, a, it was grooved into my thinking and my whole psyche that when I put my hand to something, I do it with all my might and never be afraid, no matter what people do and how they look at you. You still do what you believe. Did your dad come, right? He did. And that's how I got converted. Because what happened, me and my brothers must have all had dad issues, father issues, which I think is 95% of the population here in New Zealand I'm talking to, with the men. You can have fathers at home, but he's still invisible. My dad was a deadly dad because he was visible and invisible, He would not be there sometimes, and then he would be there. The only time we had contact with him was his fist, and um, that was quite vicious. And I found out later on that his father used to hit him at the table. He used to hit them at the – so many of them. I think the dad had to use violence to keep them quiet and stop messing around. I think he would smack him in the face, my dad said. Later on, when he got converted – so – it was a generational um, behavioural pattern that was coming through. Now, I we all went away in our ways and I was farming the farm up the road with my European family by now and I was managing my uncle's farm because I was already working on my dad's farm, granddad, on my Maori farm. So I was now on my other side of the farm and I had good relationships with them. So now it wasn't beer I was drinking. He was a whiskey drinker. <laughs> so... He used to give me a little glass of whiskey and we'd have a chat and he would talk about the Māori thing all the time. And I I realised he was racist. So my side of the family all didn't like what my mum did, was marry a Māori. So I was hearing this and I was more absorbing rather than, and he, he loved me for my work and still saw me as one of them because probably I was half and half. But it was an interesting growing up period of seeing how their, their thinking was and how they lived their but life your
0: dad, your dad yep. fitted their stereotype for their daughter
1: he did and look you know what you're right Rodney Maori they they did fit the stereotype it was unfortunate because people didn't take the time to prize it open a bit more to see that that's not really what they wanted. they just didn't no. know how to get out of it. well I found a way how to get out of it and that was basically through my mum who was threatened to leave Dad and so many times. And Dad used to, gee, he loved my mum, though, and she would often tell him about Jesus, and he said, don't talk to me about that Jesus stuff, that white Jesus. And um, anyway, he used to speak fluent Māori, but it was, it, it's the native school across the way, it was um, Te Kōpū, it was one of the first ones in the Waikato there by Parangia. And the, he used to get smacked around the legs of the cane or on his hands because he, he only could speak um, te reo, Māori. So my grandmother was concerned, and his third sister down was a very brainy woman. She became a district health nurse in those days, which was a very thing, esteemed, yeah. esteemed job. Her name was Anne. She spoke very fluent English. So she taught the two older brothers how to speak English, and in the end, they couldn't speak Māori after many years, just the English. Because she wanted me, the grandson, not to speak Maori. I'd be a fluent Maori speaker if I didn't. If this was all the other way around, Mm. so I, I obviously was raised up in an English-speaking world. But my dad was at a party one night. However, your audience takes this, or anybody, it's true, and it had a big effect on me, and therefore tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands, of other people. He was drinking out of a. They used to drink out of ag the old ag jars for preserving peaches and. Yes. They would tip their beer from the, because they had the um, mini tanks. No, oh, mini
0: tanks. Yeah,
1: yeah. Hose through the window.
0: Yeah.
1: And it had the like a gasoline yeah. pump. And they'd fill these up and they'd just drink themselves silly. He said in his own words, he lifted it up and he just saw a, a light. It was like a face in it that said, I want you now to finish this and I'm going to come into your life. So pick, put the jug down and go back and talk to your wife. She will tell you how. And he put it down, he said, and all his, but the rest of them said they looked at him and he looked like he was just totally, you know, out of it, not drunk out of it, but there was something else going on because he put it down and they said, where are you going? He said, I'm going home. And he went and shut the door. He never touched alcohol again in his life. He never. I think mixed with that, like that way, again, there's mixing enough that would be different. He went home, told mum, they prayed he received Christ in his life. The first thing i will do was come and visit me and Hannah. We were married. i met Hannah by then. I'd gone to Tukorua for four or five years. I had my own business, a very successful logging company, and I was playing rugby. rugby. I played for the junior Waikato, and I played league on Sunday, so I got chosen for the New Zealand Maoris, And I was a trialist for the Kiwis. But what happened was, and I'm a musician as well, so all of that was the Kiwi way. I was living the ultimate Kiwi way of life. And I had all I needed. had money, rugby, league, booze. I I was a musician. Now I was in a band traveling. I met Hannah. She was pregnant with our first child. We weren't married. And I was on the road with this band and I was messing around. I was really in a mess. I came home one day, my dad and mum were sitting in the kitchen and they were talking to Hannah. And my dad said, I, I looked and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm changed, son. And I said, what do you mean changed? He said, I've asked Christ into my life. And I told him to get out. I said, you can leave when you're ready and um Hannah said no and she sat there by this time we were having huge problems um you right really I'm right I'm just listening yeah and i walked out of the room i'm crying i walked out of the room and by this time i never i've not told people this much At night, I started to put a pillow over Hannah's head because she had developed asthma in her pregnancy. She couldn't breathe and it was loud. This is how how bad I got, and I wasn't that sort of person. But I just couldn't cope with what was going on, and I was fighting inside me. Probably a a bitterness toward my dad, but I wasn't to realise that my other brother, my young one, had it worse. So um, Hannah and I went out of the kitchen and I said, I'm not listening to you, and I walked into the passageway and I and I got around the corner, leaned against it, and Hannah said, what happened, Dad? And he said, I found Christ. And I thought, you know, what a loser. My mum was happy and then Hannah started to complain. Brian has put a pillow over my head to stop me because I'm breathing too loud. I've got asthma. And my father, and this is what I heard around the corner, he said, Jesus can heal that. And I thought, what the heck? And I, and he said, She said, Well, how's that? And she said, He said, We can pray for you now and he'll heal you. And I thought, Oh, no. And he, they prayed for her. Anyway, they left. As time went on, didn't think about it. But the following few days, I think it was about the following week, I noticed she never had the rasping anymore. And I said to her, hey, what's happened to that asthma? And she said, I I think I've been healed, Brian. And I said, What do you mean? She said, I don't, I haven't used the asthma um, device, and I haven't caught it. And I said, Are you telling me that you got healed? And she said, That's the I was bad, Brian. You know, you were trying to suffocate me. And I said, Well, yeah, I noticed it's gone, and this is over a week. So I said, let's go to the doctor. Make sure. We went to the doctor, Rodney. The doctor said she's completely free of asthma. She she hasn't got it, and there's no signs on her lungs or anything like that because she had all the X-rays and all that sort of stuff went through. She didn't have. She hasn't had it since Rodney. But what happened was, for me to even consider this Jesus Christ, I had to have a major a real major intervention of me because I was not a religious man. He came back the following week and said there was a big meeting there. He had listened to this at Turanga Waiwai Marae. He was from there, you see. So he was saying there was a big meeting there of Maori Christians. And there was a speaker from America, a black and African American. And I said, nah, I'm not interested. And he said, there's a big hane, and it's on Saturday. I think it's your day off, Hannah said. I said, I'll think about it. Well, cut a long story short, I went. I went for the for the honey But I was sitting at the back, and this guy started preaching about Christ, and something was burning inside of me, a, warm, a warmth, a heat. And the more he said that name, Jesus Christ, the more I felt myself breaking down inside. When he finished, I thought, finally, I'm going to go. You know, I had my smokes. I wanted to have a smoke, and my Mark II zipper was handy out the back. And Hannah got up and started walking to the front because the guy said, he wants to receive Jesus? And I thought, Where the hell is she going? And anyway, really, in my heart, I wanted to go, but I was, it was the whole Kiwi way of life. And the, drink and my friends and the rugby and I was ready on the brink of being chosen for um, the Kiwis and um, I had my back, th- just everything, but in a split second inside my belly, I actually believed what this guy said about Christ. So I went to go I thought, no, i wait for her and as I went toward the doorway, I took a left and I started going straight down I caught up with her and I went to grab her arm and she slapped my hand off and said, what are you doing here? I'm going to leave you after this. I said, I'm not here about leaving or whether I'm going to be with you. I've been a real mongrel to you. I haven't been nice. I haven't really been violent. It was only that one time where I'm trying to put a photo just to shut her up. But I said, I want to come and ask Christ into my life. And she said, well, you do it for you. I'll do it for me. And I said, yes. Well, I prayed in the back with her. And at that point in moment in 1979 of Easter, I made a decision that flipped my whole life around. And that was four months after my 21st. I was drunk as a skunk. And never, I hated religion. And here I was now. I'd asked them in my life and then I went home and I went to the little church. They filled me with this other person called the Holy Spirit. And I didn't know that one either. I went home and that evening I had an out-of-body experience. Where I went out of my body, strew the roof with this incredible love and power, all at the same time. And I I was asking, what is this? And I heard a voice say to me, just simply, I will use you greatly in this nation. And bang, I feared. And when I feared, I was back in my body. One of the things when I was out of that part going through, the brightness of it captivated me, but I could see the power lines. And what I saw in the power line was a little weird bit of string, with a little wee parachute. So it must have been a parachute. I could, I visually saw it, like he wanted me to see it. So when I come to him, I thought I was dead on the ground. And I said, no, I just, I'm pretty sure I met Jesus. And I said, hold on. And I ran to the front door, went out the steps, and I looked up into the, down the corner where I knew there it was. And I'd never seen that before. A little wee bit of string in the power line with a little parachute. I knew what I had was real and so what happened Rodney that flipped me from what I was I did a whole 360 all the workers at work I changed virtually in an instant and in an instant I stopped smoking I stopped my drinking I stopped my I even stopped swearing nobody told me just went and I devoured the Bible I even took it to work and I was working with the roughest guys and in the town, because I was working in forestry then, and we worked with, a, I worked with a gang of about 12, 15 guys. We had a bit of a reputation. The next day, even when I came, they knew something was different. They said, why are you different? What's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I was a bit shy, but I said, oh, nothing. And one guy said, looks like you had a religious experience, and I said, I have. And, you know, from there on, I, I actually um, affected my whole gang. And got them in the end. Many of them gave their lives to Christ, and I influenced them. And from there, that's where our journey started. And I don't want to talk too much, but that's how that happened. And my dad and mum today are still alive. Yeah, and wonderful. my my wife and I, my teen grandchildren, the oldest is married, Dallas is married. They're all Christians. My teen grandchildren are all Christians. They're married, but they it got married to her husband. My three great. Um, great-grandchildren all come to the same church. We're all in the same movement and love God. So that one decision not only affected me and my way I treated my wife, my whole life, it it got my family all together on the same path of light. And then from there, I've had the privilege of being used marvellously by God in my own country and in Australia and in pakistan india in europe parts of europe and america so that one decision um has allowed me to influence um, hundreds of thousands of people for the better
0: that's the most beautiful story of it. that is so wonderful and to think the joy that you now have in your life mm compared to the emptiness and anger and desperation that you otherwise would have had.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um I've been great 43 thing about, years.
0: 43 great, years. Yeah. Rodney right now. And the great thing about it is your great success serves only to make you humble. Mm. Because you realize that you there's something bigger in you. It's not a you, you I've noticed like as you tell the story there's a humility in it mm. tell yeah. me tell me about do you mind if we go over time yeah
1: no you can go anywhere you like Rodney you because take...
0: I have to say this is important to tell the story and I don't want to come along and say look I've got to stop now if you're happy for time,
1: yeah, um, I've made I've made the time.
0: Great, tell me, that is an extraordinary story. Like it's once we're warriors through to yeah a great family loving Legacy. network by allowing Jesus into your life.
1: Yeah,
0: that one thing.
1: Yeah, well, I've I've existed or. I've fed off that one revelation. My, you, don't, you don't need to have a great explosive testimony or experience. You're saved by faith through grace. And I tell people, never try to repeat or think anything less of your, your salvation because it's, you believe with your heart, you confess with your mouth. But I, I think for me it, it was important because God had a extra bit of work for me to do it was never going to be easy obviously he took the all the parts of my past were useful mm. nothing's a waste of your past even when it was in in bad terms it's all redeemable and so how I was raised and the two families the two sets of races um having a very positive uncle in the middle of probably a victimized generation. I was able to grow with a very strong, um, my personality was strengthened, and I think that was important ultimately for the apostolic uh, gift that's uniquely been put on my life. I understand it. It's not always, it's, it's a different gift from the pastor, evangelist, teacher, prophet first apostles, and the, um, the apostles were the cornerstone, and now in the church globally, apostles should really, uh, they're spiritual fathers. And that's where uh, Revelation 20, 15 years ago came out of a service. Well, There's a long story, and I can't take too much of your time, but I do know this, that when I came out of a service one morning, I spoke about putting the man back into the man, because the church was so effeminate at that time. And I say that with not much of the of the rainbow movement was around then. It was just that all the – it seemed that women were at church and the men were watching rugby and drinking on Sunday. And I was quite a, a bit of a, a misfit at that time because I was a 21, 22-year-old, long hair, pretty good physically in sport. And I was gifted. I didn't need I didn't need religion. I was apprehended. It was like I was taken. Now, um, in saying that, um, Hannah came. We came out of a service one day, and I said, "Oh, how's that, honey? That was great, wasn't it?" She said, "Yeah." So I started driving. And I thought she's troubled. And um, then she said, "Brian." And when she said it like that, I thought, "Oops. Okay. <laughs> Did I go too long?" Did I? And she said, "You have to be a father to all these men." And I said, they got their own dads. And she said, no, they haven't. And many of them have got no dads, violent dads, or dads that are there but are not there. And she just said nothing more. And I was driving along and I was thinking, meh. Anyway, it must have been a word from God through my wife to me. And I thought about it for a good week or two and then i decided to do something about that she was right how many men can speak the real honest truth about what's inside them and she said another thing you know what you didn't share a lot of things with me i had to drag it out of you now here's the thing she was she was raised by her father who was european and her maori mother left when she was a little child i was virtually raised by my european mum and my Māori dad was absent. So I was raised by a mother. She was raised by a father, both Europeans. So what she said, that having a dad was more uh, emotionally and mentally beneficial or an advantage than a single mum trying to raise sons and daughters. Mm. There was emotional and I would say the thinking process of my life were totally out of whack, the insecurity, fear could be probably a part of it, and yet she was completely um, stable and well established emotionally, mentally, and we both concurred that it was the role of the dad was vital to the daughter and son's emotional and mental well-being, and of course, mums go a heap of a way to make sure that the family is is cared for or mothered. And soft, and that's why sons gravitate more to their mums, because a lot of dads didn't know how to relate to their sons and daughters too well. So you see that big divide. And I remember in the inmates in prison when once they were sent they uh, asked to send a Christmas card to their mothers, about 95% plus of the inmates sent them to their mums. And when it came to sending one to dad, um, something like seven or eight percent of them sent. Sent one to the father. The others didn't want to send it. So it shows mm-hmm. you the massive. We've got a massive father problem in our country. So um, that was. Tell us, tell us about
0: yeah. Tell us about Destiny Church.
1: Okay, there's so many long stories to that because I, when I went to church, I didn't know anything about church, and I was still farming. We went to the AOG festival, but when I drove in. You're going to probably think this is not not me. We had the 186 Holden then, came in early and had it got dressed and I got dressed. We had the one child, the baby then, and we come into the car park and she says, oh, there's a park. And I said, no, no, I'll no, get that one over there. Went to the next one and I went past that one. And she says, what are you doing? Then I hit the exit and I took off back home, 12, 13 k back up to the farm we had a bit of an argument on the way home. And she said, What's wrong with you? And I said, I didn't want to go in. And she said, Why? Because I saw those people at the doorway. It must have been door greeters. And I was a very self conscious person, Rodney. Even though I was brought up with, you know, believing yourself is strong, I had that issue that I couldn't talk properly. And I had trouble with pronunciation. And I still do today with certain words, I'll dodge them.
0: Find another I'm way around. Same.
1: I'm the same, and um,
0: I have a terrible. In fact, um, my and, son is t- verbally dyspraxic, and I think I have it. And it exhausts me to talk because yeah. I have to concentrate so hard on the words. Yeah, and I can't say odd words, and I feel foolish. I can't say. Often people's surnames that are foreign or Maori. Mm. And I mean no disrespect. And they'll tell it to me and I'll still mangle it. And I feel so embarrassed. And it's funny, I spent most of my life talking and I struggled to talk.
1: Yeah. That was me. You and me both. Well, I had incredible self-consciousness. And that's what the self-consciousness was. So I was quiet when I used to go to parties and pups be in the corner drinking and just looking around, it was the guys, and you just grunt to each other, the men, mm. but when it came to this, like, I could not, I felt inferior, and that was a bad problem because of my speech. I couldn't pr- pronounce a lot of words then, and I didn't talk a lot, and I so it made me self i Had not knew that? So that's why I drove home, and she said, well, look, you got to face up to it, Brian, if you're going to, Love God and serve God, and I didn't actually say that I was going to serve Him, like that. <laughs> but I knew, I knew from that experience I had, because yes. I told her. So she said, "No, you met Him," and boy, that got me. And I said, "I did." So she told me the story about Moses. Moses had a speech impediment. I did That's not why, that. yeah. In Exodus, God said, "You'll go face Pharaoh, and you will speak on my behalf." And He said. For Lord, I can't speak from a slow tongue. What we found out that Moses had a stutter or a problem. So he says, send my brother Aaron. He's a smart speaker. And God said, all right, for now, I'll let Aaron's, but he can only speak what you tell him, not what he wants, because I'll only speak to you. So there you go. When God chooses somebody, doesn't matter what problems or hangups, he's going to still work with that chosen person until they get it. They will come through it. And that's what happened eventually because his brother started to take power to himself and take it away from the true man. It was Moses. So God rectified that and he took Aaron out of the way and then Moses got confidence. He said, you don't have to say much. It's how you say it. And he started to speak with authority of God. And that's what I, I really started to Basically, digest and feast on the Bible. And I wasn't really, I was only reading Pray Boy and uh, Repent House. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We were all in forestry. That's all yes. the magazines. <laughs> That's right. What else do you read? <laughs> do you like the way I put it? Yes. Pray Boy. Anyway, that stuff all went because I had a hunger for God's word. And I I went. I loved, I, I got into church. I got over myself. And that was the break. I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelations right through. When I did it in my lunch times, outside work, I'd work hard, then I'd read hard too. And I just devoured this stuff, not always understanding it. But that didn't matter. It was getting in. And I knew, I knew deep inside later on I, I would have a great mission. I knew there was a great purpose. So I thought everything I was doing would not be a waste. And everything I've been through would not be wasted. It would all work together to get the right mix for what God wanted to use in a certain time. And it proved to be right. And um, I then joined the church there. And I was in the, then I went to the Apostolic Church because my dad and mum took me there. The Apostolic Church was a Pentecostal church. And mum eventually got filled with the Holy Spirit too from a Methodist. And my mum and dad, and I went to this little wee church. It was raging, but the music was shocking. So the pastor said, Is your a musician here? And I put my hand up. That became a brutal habit. Because <laughs> well, next Sunday would be, Who Who wants to go to visit the prison in Waikiki? I put my hand up. Um, who wants to do the youth work in town? I put my hand up. Who wants to be a door greeting next? I put my hand up. After a while, you have to say, and, um, somebody else put their head up, Brian? You just, wait. you got about 12 jobs now, you know. But mm. I was doing I was so hungry. And Hannah and I were like that. We went on a total 100, 150%. We sold ourselves out as young 20-year-olds. So I went on the street much to the, well, to the embarrassment and shame of my family because the town was full of my family. And I'd go outside the pub with a guitar. Now I changed from playing Deep Purple and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, the Eagles and the Doobie Brothers to playing, and I rocked it up a bit. I always rocked our music up in the church, and some of the church elders used to complain, but I used to get the band together, and I said, look, we write our own songs. And that's what we did, we used to write songs, and I had guitars, and I brought my brother into the drums and bass. We had um, the electronic stuff with the synthesizers. So I already was doing modern music that was out of its time. So after t- 13 years, and I went away to Bible college because I knew I had to get some formal input. I knew I had the brain. I just never, I left school when I was, since I got to 15, play sports and earn money to drink. So I went to the Teneco uh, Bible Training Centre in Wellington. It was a theological Bible college with uh, 15 subjects, university level. So I took a whole year off work. It was a bit, of a bit of a hard, difficult time. I was still working, but I had the money. I had it all together, cash for the fee. Um, had to really battle out because Hannah was pregnant with our last child, third child. She said, we're going to Bible college and I'm pregnant. And what you? I said, I have to, honey. So we agreed. And I took 13 subjects, our 15 subjects, paid the fees up front, which was unusual in those days. And she questioned me about all the cash in the bag, you know. It looked a bit, I said, well, (laughs) how does everybody pay here? And they said, well, they actually, some of them were still paying from five years, 10 years before. No, I said, I got the full price, I pay up front. And I went through that, it was one of the most important times of my life. I was one of the highest achievers in the history of the college, two subjects 100% in Hebrew and um, in pastoral uh, studies. And I did another extra five years in correspondence with in, to Brussels and Belgium, where I qualified. And I was only about six or seven theses which is short of my PhD and and honours. But I didn't do it because I took my life took a turn when I thirteen years in the Apostolic Church, and I grew the the biggest and fastest growing church in the movement. But some of the guys found that I was breaching the traditions of the Apostolic Church. Brian's got modern music and he's got drums and guitars and he's um got all these people in there from all sorts of backgrounds that need to be properly you know, say so it was, you know, I was literally saving people off the street and a lot of uh, Maoris were attracted to my ministry. And um European too, but more Maoris. Cause I it wasn't my hometown for a long while. I shifted to Rotorua. In and Rotorua, and my two brothers with me, we were all very visionary-minded. We had an idea to start a, a um, tourist business, tourism business. Um, and all the tourist um, tourism that day was held in the big hotels. Mm-hmm. So they had the Maori portion where they did a haka and a poi, and then they shifted them off and they gave them a feed in the hotels. Me and my brothers come up with the idea of actually taking that out of the hotels and putting it on an actual marae so that people got experience and in walking into the marae and the whole thing of a hangi, watching all of the weaponry use of the taiaha, and seeing how they lived with a bit of bush around it. Mm-hmm. So we had that idea, and it would also give a lot of our people work. Well, we sent the first email out, and we got immediately the same week from the biggest two hotel chains in the country Send an email to us threatening us. That if yeah, you, boys, you boys do this, we'll run you out of town kind of thing. You know, because it was all, they had total. They had the, yeah, control. Yeah. But this is when my childhood grooves of don't let anybody else put you down, do not let their opinions affect yours. And the brothers, one of them was already in tourism, my second brother. He was driving the tourist buses in Rotorua, working for a company. And my younger brother Unfortunately, he was riding for Hell's Angels. He was a he was a druggie, and he was selling big. He had about four motorbikes, and I hadn't seen him for about four or five years. But we all met. It was a long time. So he had a great session. we hugged and they all and he looked at me and said, That you come one of those women Christians, Brian. And you know, my younger okay. brother said, Yeah. And I said, Become a hells angel. <laughs> he said, Yeah. <laughs> what a fork in the road that is. Yeah, and he was quite notorious, my younger brother, and in, in the uh, New Zealand Hells Angel scene. So we told him the idea. And I said, You guys should do it. Sell your sell your bikes, Doug. That's how we get the money. And he looked at <laughs> looked at us, what? He had four of them. I said, Sell them. Do legitimate business. You know, get out of that. And he said, Oh. You know, I was thinking of leaving because I got a girl and we got a couple of kids that weren't married and that and that. they all knew about the Christian faith, but they weren't they were backslidden. So I started to influence their lives quite a bit. And I said, look, you start the tourism business called Tamaki Tours, and I'm starting my church here because I've left the Apostolic Church, they've blessed me. And I'm gonna I gave them a document before I left the the, the big board of um, reverends and apostles and bishops and got together because I said to them I need to make a shift then. This was um way back in 1985, 86. So they said, oh, we'll send us something. And I got something like this. Just a you know a little document, about 10 pages, and I gave it to them the next board meeting. There's about 22 of them, I think, and they all went through it. some of them, the younger ones were a bit more jealous. So they just clicked through it like this. And, uh, and the others looked at it and took time and poured over it and they all said, well, it's interesting, but um, they came to the conclusion it didn't fit and it wouldn't work where they were, the Apostolic Churches, the history from the Welsh Revival. I respected that. But the um, superintendent really loved him and I. And I said, well, look, I have to ask to be released from serving here for 13 years. And they all got upset a bit. But the superintendent said no. I think Brian and Hannah need to be released to start what they need to do. And they did. He did. He came and blessed us and released us. I wanted their blessing. He gave it. You know what I gave them that day? Was the blueprint to Destiny Church. How amazing. You don't know, nobody knows about that denomination today. They broke up, they come apart, it fragmented. It's been a small church denomination for years. Whereas, You mentioned that name, probably not only New Zealanders, but a lot of Australians know Destiny Church. Mm. And the Lord said, I will make you a great person, Brian. Well, you mentioned my name and most New Zealanders, either way, whether it's negative or positive, they know. And I could never have done that and I wouldn't want to have done that. But this is all for him and my country. Your wife. Plays, has played role.
0: a huge role in your life. Do you know, I love, yes. the, I love the picture of all that you put her through. Terrible. Terrible what you did to her. Yeah. And all that you put through her. When she went to receive Jesus at the Mirai she mm. said, well, you went to take her arm and most wives – would be so happy to receive their husband back. Yeah, but she said, you do what you're going to do. Because she, wasn't, mean,
1: she yeah. is, she's a strong woman. She is the mother of this nation as far as I'm concerned. Yes. She's, oh, man, I've, she's got, anyway. Um, she was That's a great
0: me, thing, wasn't it? That was a powerful moment. That,
1: that's, that's a um, unique woman. She was prepared to lose the relationship if it wasn't fake. If I was faking it to yeah. just keep her around or whatever I wanted, she put it to the test right there.
0: Don't because most men, most men, and I include myself, we sort of do things to get through the moment with our yep. wives, yep. right? And yep. it's not real. We actually haven't changed. No. Oh, look, I was drunk, honey. I'll never happen again. Yeah. And they believed you because they want to believe you. And you go up to receive Jesus and she thinks, Oh, he's Brian's just saying this, so I'll stay with him. But she she wanted you to do what you wanted to do, and she'd do what she wanted to do, and she'd meet you on the other
1: side. She, well, if she wouldn't have known that I was I had a burning, burning sensation in the middle yeah. of my tummy. During that that guy's preaching. I don't even know who he was to this day. Every time he mentioned the name Jesus Christ, whack, it was there. Um, so I, I just was gonna write it off to being soft. But when she got up and moved, she was already she decided because she was healed. Don't, what people, whatever people don't, doesn't matter what you think about it.
0: Mm.
1: It was real to me what have happened. That was the way my path to God apprehending me. So when I walked up, I see how strong the self-consciousness was. It was a terrible disease and most inferiority complex. I think most people suffer from some level or another. But I think it was really bad in me because of that impediment and never having any active, encourage after I lost my relationship with my uncle you and your own in the world um you have to fight all those things that were going on anyway I th- I believe that Hannah is um an incredible part of the ma- uh, true matriarch of this family and now when I see her because She supported me when I started and the call came and we started the first church. It was a funny, funny story itself. She supported a fumbling, you know, sort of stumbling into things rather than the accuracy. My first message was filled with we had and we had a the Methodist couple that were the stewards of the Methodist Church when we were kids came to my first service. He he remembered. The Tamaki boys, and you heard us starting a church. He probably wanted my, the money back. He probably his his wife was an English teacher at school. And I my first message was a mess. <laughs> but she even corrected me with a few words when they come and see me. But they both had tears in their eyes. And they said, We we've decided to leave the Methodist church where we've been for 40 plus years or whatever. It was longer than that. We want to join you, Brian, because I we have never felt such fire of the spirit coming out of a person than we had this morning. It was almost the words didn't matter. It was what was flowing out of you. We felt that. And even though there's only 15 people here, most of them were my cousins and the broken side of my family and I had one or two. I had my grandmother, our Italian grandmother there. And, and it was just like I, my first message was, can you believe this? This is not egotistical either. I will build New Zealand's greatest church one day. (laughs) That's what I titled it. And I actually got a letter from the Presbyterian minister rebuking me for being arrogant because the only way I could get it out to get people to come was to advertise it and I put that title in there. And so I I got um, some stick for that because I got involved with the local minister's fraternal. And I remembered. I thought I didn't mean it like that. And I thought that that was I sounding. I said to Hannah, "Was that is that pride, proudful?" You know, and I. She said, "No, you meant that genuinely." Well, I did, because I already had destined in me as a seed. It was already there, and it's hard to explain to people when you're talking to them and doing things, and you know something that's yet to happen, or you hear it before it comes out in the news, or. You see a picture of this church with many churches and pastors. So it's like much of what was going on today. You are hidden a bit. So it's an priests, interesting
0: thing. Yeah, it's an interesting thing for me, Brian, listening to you because there is that fine line between coming across as arrogant yeah. and being confident, and also that you've been chosen by God and therefore you're special and coming across as special. And so I I struggle with it because I think, oh, who the hell does Brian Tamaki think? You know, there he is starting the greatest church and God's chosen him, he's not chosen me, and he's got all these skills. But there's two aspects to it. One is the Muhammad Ali. But where you actually to achieve great things, you've actually got to be full of self confidence, and to be full of self confidence means articulating it. Yeah. Well, I and, this, and then you are chosen by God as you
1: define it, as you as you as you've explained it. That's the that's the misery sometimes. The pain, the pain is the pain, and the purpose it go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And I I would never have. You probably like Moses. Probably would never have gone out and left Egypt if he knew he had to take five or six million people through the Red Sea. Um, God doesn't tell him everything, no, <laughs> till he gets there. And it's good that I didn't know everything either, because I probably would have been a coward too and pulled out. Because you think, oh no, I don't want, I don't want that part of it, you know, and this part of it. Because I remember David going to the battlefield and. One of the things that was interesting to me is always struck me about David, he arrived and he was he had this self-assurance and his his belief and his confidence in what he had was basically what got him through um the criticisms, the potential distractions and mocking, and even the defiance and the threat from the Goliath, the enemy. When he comes to the battleground, the first thing he does because he's sent there to give see how his, his brothers are doing, bring back a word how the boys are doing to his father. So he was young, been in the wilderness. He's actually shepherding, in, killed a bear, and a lion, saved the saved the sheep. So he comes with these cheeseburgers for his brothers, and he hears this bellowing giant. And the first thing he inquires about was, "What did I hear there? Was there a reward going on?" And they said, "Yeah." Tax free all your life if you kill the giant. The person does that gets the king's daughter, and he said, "Hmm." And the other one was all the treasures and riches you want. So he said, "Shucks, can you repeat that again?" And it does, and they tell him. So the reward he was not fighting for nothing. You don't go into a battle to fight for nothing. You fight for something. And so he went, and his brother said, "Oh, here you are. What are you doing, crying about the battle? You're just a proud, insolent." Um, brother go back and look after those sheep so there's the derision there is the brothers who were jealous already about his confidence so they tried to pop this bubble of uh, belief and self-confidence in him david said what have i got to do with you guys don't you know that we have got a cause there's a cause for our country why are you sitting on the hillside with saul in fear considering we serve the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So David said, and Whatever he moved on, he said to the king, Saul, who was frozen in fear, he said, I'll go and fight the giant. And again, the king said, you can't, there you go, because you're just a youth. And he's a warrior from his youth. He's a champion, and he was. But David said, I killed the lion and the bear. My history is, I'm not afraid of taking care of an enemy and I'll take care of this guy. So the rest of the story, he went out and he killed. But before he did, it was interesting. The giant said, "What what is this? You humiliate me by sending me this little dog who's not even a soldier. He's not one that's chosen to be in the part of the elite army. And he's just a farmhand. I love it. And then he does something. He, The giant curses him and says, by the gods that I worship. This is what for the Philistine, people miss this part. So Goliath was actually representing every false god and religion that there was in the country at that time. And I'm pretty sure this is the deeper reason of the drive it was a spiritual one. And they wanted to rule over these Israelites. And David says, well, I come to you in the name of my God one true God today I'll defeat you so this could be very arrogant because he goes and starts to give him an outline on how the battle is going to go before it's happened and that he's going to lose his head he's going to drop him and he's going to lose his head off and I'll have a great victory today so I looked at all this and I've read it a thousand plus thousand times over and all I see is somebody like me the same yeah, feeling great. yeah yeah we're not it's not ego. It's not like he's up himself. Oh, don't worry about that. There's plenty of things that you know keep me humble every day. Um it's having that confidence. If you don't have it, you can't have courage. And courage is contagious. It is fear is, fear is contagious too. Yes. But courage. Courage is stronger. And that's what David did, and he had a great victory. You all know about David and Goliath, but Nobody talks about the fact is that David had a big word war. It took him five minutes to probably kill Goliath, I think. But it took him about an hour and a half to have word battles with his brothers. I'm going to
0: read that. I'm going to read that straight after this. Tell me. um, Yeah. You give courage to men.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. That's my
0: joy. And you know what to be a man is. Mhm.
1: Well, the man up program we started out of doing it with those boys. I started it way back with those guys, and um, when I got three of them together with me in the room, I didn't had no idea. And I I told them my story, what I told you in depth, and the, the two of them had been just out of prison. One of them was um, a mess and a nightmare to society. When they heard my story, and I told the parts of much more, they they couldn't believe it. They looked at me, and the guy next to me said, can I tell you something I've hidden? I said, yeah. And this guy, for the first time in his life, went into the depths of the cellar of his life and pulled out the monster that was basically damaging and destroying his life all up to this time. He was a... 50-year-old man, I think, at that time, 51. And he pulled out the terrible rape that happened to him from one of the men that were at a party. His, they've, they had a party at his place. One of the men got him, the kids, raped him, never brought it up, and he talked about it and brought it out, and he was just bawling his eyes. And he, I stood up and I thought, how am I going to? You know what? I did... All I did was say nothing. I grabbed him and I hugged him. That guy hugged me and must have been, it seemed like, forever. And after a while, he hugged me so tight I just about couldn't breathe. And my whole jersey at that time was soaking wet with his tears and just hugged him. And the other two end up doing the same thing. And I discovered that so many men had so much hurt locked up inside and they just needed somebody to unlock that and really care for them and give them something where they could talk to another man and be released and validated that they are okay. And that's what I did. And that was the beginning of the healing of those three that started the whole movement. You've done thousands, yeah. tens of you've helped thousands, oh, thousands of thousands.
0: Hundreds of thousands hundreds
1: of thousands. It's in Australia. It's big in Australia. It's in all the major cities. And Australians have taken it by storm now, Man Up. It's big time there because there's no – the media haven't defiled the name of Destiny on the Gold Coast. It's big. Yes. They just they were on Channel 9 News uh, just cold recently cold. for Man Up. And they, the announcers are talking about Destiny and everybody just loved it because there was no pre- preconceived um, idea that this, this media totally blighted and, and contaminated Destiny in my name. So people already have a, a um, perception, and it's a wrong one, unfortunately, and so it's a battle. But over there, it isn't. So it's taken for what it is, and it's a it's got a, you, You're on right.
0: Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Brian Tamaki. What a what a morning we've had. Tell me, Brian, <laughs> who do we vote for to get you into Parliament?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I. I don't know, I was crazy enough to stand this time. I've never stood before. I've always been I remember when you were in the ACT Party, Rodney. Mm. Um one of my neighbors, well not far, he wasn't an exact close neighbor, but he was down the road was um, Mike Moore, was it? Yes. Yeah. Mike Moore from the Labour Party. Yeah, was that that was him I think, was it? He was out at Maraito. He's I
0: think
1: it
0: was him. anyway. Don't anyway, worry. don't worry about that.
1: But who do we vote for? Who do we give our party vote to? Um, Party Vote Freedoms New Zealand, if you want somebody that's transparent and honest, and one of the first things that I would do, and I was asked by the media the other day in Wellington, what's the biggest or the, the one policy, Brian, that you put forward? And I basically said to them very clearly, this uh, this is what I said to them, I wrote it down to make sure I got it right. I'd restore Christianity as our national founding faith again. Mm. that's what I said. I'd restore uh, Christ back into this country. I'd bring prayer back into Parliament. I would honour our flag and our national anthem so that everybody in this country knew that when you proudly sing, God defend New Zealand, that you knew who that God was. You know that you understand
0: the Malaise that is affecting New Zealand.
1: I haven't talked about it on here because it's it would be too much spiritually. Yes. Yeah. But um, that
0: what is affecting New Zealand is a deep cultural, spiritual void. That's right. And an evil that is swept across New Zealand. Brian, well, exactly so. Brian, would you mm. come back and talk to us
1: more? I I will. I'll talk to you, Rodney,
0: if you want. No problems. Uh, well, look, we have covered uh I feel as though we have covered you. And what I'd like to cover now is next, when you come back on, is more about the church, Destiny New Zealand, the Man Up program, and your view of politics. I have to say it was a very powerful testimony from you. And I I feel privileged and honoured that you would share it with me and our listeners.
1: Thank and, you very much.
0: Um, I, I think you're very, very wonderful. That is Bishop Brian Tamaki. What an amazing story. You can see why he can reach into the hearts and the tortured souls of so many men because he's not talking to them from a distant place. He's talking to them from the very place that they've come from. And it's authentic and it's real. And you can also see, if you're a believer, why a man with his gifts and his upbringing and his life, if you're a believer, why God would choose him and why God would give him the skills that he so evidently has what a great story and i hope that we get to hear more we will because he's an amazing man this is real talk with rodney hyde tuesdays and thursdays from 10 a.m